Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I want you to go to the end of that chapter. This is where we ended the last time. Now here's going to be the tell for me how many were here for that last message on Romans 1, 24 through 32. 24 through 32. Okay, so we need to do just a, a tad bit of review uh, as we've gone through this verse by verse, I've tried my best not to spend too much time on old material, but we had Jubilee, and I think it'll be important for us to kind of take the end of this chapter one into what we're getting ready to hit on in chapter two. Now, let me say this tonight before we even begin, because really, chapter two of Romans, especially the first two verses, is one of the most abused, misused, mistreated, and sometimes just simply misunderstood texts in all of the New Testament. This is one of the greatest crowbars that gets put into the hand of usually someone who's upset that their sin has been exposed or that they've come in contact with something that they feel is abrasive about the way they are living. And they use the words there of the apostle and they turn it into something that it does not mean. So the exciting thing is that we're going to leave here tonight. We'll begin the process in chapter 2 of really understanding what the Apostle Paul is saying there in Romans 2, 1 and 2 about judgment, judging one another. But I think you'll pick up on what we're saying here in a few minutes on how that's mistreated and abused. Um, but before we get there, you've got to understand that this letter, the first part of it, we talked about this. The first part of it, especially for the first three chapters, we're looking at a lot of condemnation. There is a lot of correction that's happening here. Some of what Paul is writing in the first two or three chapters of Romans is heavy, heavy material. Uh, we ended chapter one with probably the heaviest material to date. If you remember, go back in your mind, kind of how the tone of the letter started, everything seemed to be uh, very cordial and friendly. We talked about that faith that was known around the world. And then all of a sudden, uh, the apostle puts the truck in four by four, if you will, and he goes off road. I'm talking, we're, we're climbing rock somewhere. It's heavy stuff. And now we're kind of transitioning out of a couple of different thoughts. There was the thought that we were uh, dealing with the condemnation towards the Gentile the condemnation towards the pagan or the barbarian, and now the condemnation as it pertains to the Jew. So as we transition out of this and we go into chapter 2, we're starting to go into the condemnation of the Jew. Now, for those of you that really like to dig deep, especially in Bible study and theology, and you like to read different commentaries, you will find here in Romans chapter 2 there is some big differences. A couple of different uh, mainline theologians see this differently. Uh, Schofield did not believe that this pertained to the Jew. Schofield believes that chapter 2 is another uh, delegation or another delineation towards pagan Gentiles or Gentiles that maybe have a little bit more knowledge than other pagans. Uh, others really dive into that these verses here in chapter 2, 1 through about 16, really is pointed towards the Jew. My study, what I find, I kind of lean into the fact that this is towards the Jew. 
and later on we'll point out exactly how we make those uh, understandings and what points to the fact that it is the Jew. So I, I want to stick into that thought. I really want to lean into this because the law so matters. And we've got to remember who the Apostle Paul's main audience is in his ministry. We've got to remember who he was prior to his conversion. So tonight, let's, for just a moment, let's remember who this is that's writing this letter to the Christians in Rome. Let's remember who the Apostle Paul was. The Apostle Paul, before he was Paul, was who? Saul, a very prominent, well-educated, probably a trilingual man, a very brilliant man, a scholar. He was a brilliant Pharisee, if you will, and had a lot of power, had a lot of position. We know from the story on the Damascus Road that the Apostle Paul had enough influence and had enough power that he was able to get a special set of letters that allowed him to go in Damascus and hunt Christians. He kind of was the, the wild, wild uh, West Ranger, if you will, that had the right and the power to do whatever he wanted to do. This man had power. He had clout. He was a very brilliant man, an educated man. And he really, his burden towards the Jew, it comes out in especially Acts chapter 8 and 9, you see what he says. You remember what he, the claim that he made that he said was uh, confirmed by the Holy Ghost of God, that if he could, and remember this, that if Paul could, he would die and go to hell. That word there in Greek is anathema that he would be separated from God for all eternity for his kinsman, which is the Jew, for the sake of the Jew, that he would die and go to hell. That was his love for the Jew. That was his burden was for the Jew, also for the Gentile. But we've got to remember who this is that's writing this letter. Now, let's back up into the 24th verse and hit on this just for a second, and then we'll go into chapter 2. So we're seeing in verse 24, let's read that for the sake of those that weren't here and then we'll dive into this. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Go down to verse number 32. Who knowing the judgment of God, 
that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only to do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now, notice how the transition happens out of one to two. Remember, as the Apostle Paul is writing this, he's not putting in chapter and verse. This is one letter. We have for us a perfect break here in chapter one and chapter two, but look what the Apostle Paul's first word is in chapter two, verse one. What's that word? Therefore, a continuation or a summary, an ending to what has already been said. So the thought continues. Therefore, will therefore what? Therefore, everything he has read, everything that he has written thus far. So we've had all this condemnation. We've talked about the theme of the letter. Uh, Let's go back even into that. Go to verse number 18. This is all going to come together. Go to verse number 18. Here it is again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 19, because that. And then verse 21, because that. And now we go down to verse 24, wherefore. And now we're at verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore. So as we study this out, where you see those words, kind of underline them, mark them. It it gives you a a real understanding of what he's trying to put into one thought. But Paul is showing in verse 24 and 25 a few things, and if you weren't here, let me give these to you quickly. The essence of man's sinfulness. The essence of man's sinfulness. Number two, the expression of man's sinfulness. This is the actions that take place of someone who is without Christ left unchecked. There was something I said in that message and I had a few people come to me and say, hey, that really helped me understand this one thing. That one thing that they were talking about is something that's huge in our country. It's massive in our culture. Uh, It's so deadly in especially a corporate setting for you to make a stand against such a lifestyle. And it's not that we're taking some sort of extra special sword of condemnation, but we are pointing to the truth of God's word, and that has to do with homosexuality. Homosexuality, there are a lot of pastors, now, and I'm not throwing a stone at them, I'm not chunking a rock at them, but there are a lot of pastors in America tonight that will not touch on that subject simply out of fear of retribution. But I can't get away from the truth of God's word that it is absolutely 100% shown obviously to anyone who can read that God finds it unpleasing and as a sin. It's listed as a condemnable sin. It's not to be so. And it's not, that's not the ground that we're going to live and die on as far as our message that homosexuality is a sin. Of course it is a sin. But the message is that Jesus loves you and that he'll change you, that he died for you, and that there's hope for you to live differently. But the warning in the end of this chapter was, at some point, God takes his hand off of the situation and says, I'm finished. Now, I'm not just talking about folks that are living a lifestyle of homosexuality. That can be all types of people. There are people who have sat on the pews of churches for years 
who go home and live a completely different life, a double life, have different uh, lovers in different cities and have an illicit relationship with alcohol and drugs and they look like a Christian, they talk like a Christian, but at the end of the day, God's given them warning after warning, opportunity after opportunity, and they simply ignore it. And eventually, God's saying, I'm gonna back off of that situation and give them over to a reprobate mind. It's a very scary text. God broke my heart the first time we preached that. It's, it's so heavy. And what it makes us do as Christians is we back up and say, God, thank you for my salvation. We talked about that. Lord, thank you that I'm saved and on my way to heaven. And what I said in that message is this. Folks that use this line as it pertains to homosexuality, and I think this will help the church and it's why I'm touching on it again tonight. As it pertains to homosexuality, the great line that I've heard a thousand times, many times I've heard it in my own office counseling with someone who's dealing with an issue or a problem as it pertains to that. The line is this, well, pastor, the problem is I was born this way. I was born this way. And a lot of people, I've heard it a lot. I've heard it even out of pulpits that I love and trust. People say, well, no, there's no way you were born that way. I totally 100% disagree. I agree you were born in the state in which you are in. The, the progression is obvious here in Romans chapter one. Someone who is not saved, someone who is a degenerate, someone who does not have the Holy Spirit of God living on the inside of them. If you watch the progression in Romans chapter one as we end and go into this next chapter, it's obvious that that is the fruit of living a rebellious life as a lost person away from God. You're absolutely right. You were born lost and undone without Jesus. And the lifestyle that you are living as a homosexual, yes, you were born that way, lost and undone without Jesus. Now, where we have to draw the line and where even some churches today will allow some sort of twist or uh, some sort of angle, if you will, to allow homosexuality to be seen as a norm or that it's just another stepping stone that uh, there can be homosexuality within the church and it's okay and it's normal and it's accepted and God loves them. Yes, God loves them, but God wants to save them and change them and bring them out of that lifestyle. So when someone says to you, I was born this way, don't be so quick to say, no, you weren't. Yeah, actually, you might need to say, you're absolutely right. Every single one of us was born lost and undone without Jesus. We need to be changed. We need to be saved. So as we go through this, that's the expression of man's sinfulness. It'll come out in all types of different ways. Today in the sermon this morning, you heard what hungry people will do. Go back in 2 Kings 6 and read what happened. That conversation between the king and the woman there on the gate. They were so hungry that they were literally eating their children. That is wickedness shown on display. That's who we are without Christ. Are you starting to see, are you starting to understand just how fallen, just how wicked we are as human beings without Jesus? And aren't you thankful, aren't you glad that you have seen the truth, that God called you out of darkness and showed you the light? Praise the Lord, I know I am. All right, so let's move on. That was the expression of man's sinfulness. 
And then the last thing we saw was the extent of man's sinfulness. 28 through 32 of chapter 1. That is the extent. There's a very long list of things that are there. There was something that stood out to me there that was just heartbreaking. It it grabbed my heart and it was the unthankfulness, the ingratitude that God would allow that listed in the same category as pagan idol worship. That if we're unthankful, if we're ungrateful, there's something to that that is a form of witchcraft. Imagine that. That if we would look at the blessings that God has given us or that we would look at our salvation even and use some sort of theology or doctrine to find some elevated place to say, well, here I am, you know, an elevated high horse position, I guess is a good way to say that. That's not what God has called us to do. God's called us to be thankful for what we have, thankful for the blessings, thankful for our salvation. That's the extent of man's sinfulness. And it's the law of sowing and reaping that takes effect. Now, I want to be very careful right here. This sowing and reaping thing. Our children are next door. Our teenagers, most of them are next door. But I think it's important for us to see some truth here. We've got to to really understand some things. The sowing and the reaping. If you go back to the AIDS epidemic that gripped our world... There is a direct line to follow that virus that leads back to the ways of wickedness, the ways of man kept unchecked. You say, that makes me really uncomfortable that you're saying that. You're going to get us in trouble. It's the truth. It's sowing and reaping. This monkeypox outbreak that we're seeing in our country and in other places in Europe and in Africa, yet again... It is another sowing and reaping of nasty, vile, human wickedness that comes with consequence. Now, now, does that mean, does that mean I'm to hate someone because of their actions? No, here in just a minute, we're getting ready to get ours, if you will. The Apostle Paul lays this out clearly for us. We get our back 40 absolutely plowed in the next two verses. But it's the point that we're trying to make, the point that we're trying to really dive into here is if it was not for the Lord in your life, where would you be tonight? There should never be a day in this life on this earth where you have Jesus that you can't find something to be thankful for and have a smile on your face for. Because if it was not for the mercy and grace of God, there's no telling where you'd be and there's no telling where I'd be. This is the fallen nature of men. What we're realizing, church, is the Bible's actually true. Every single solitary word is absolutely true. And if we'll just lean into the truth of God's word and believe it wholeheartedly, everything else will fall into place. That's why it's so difficult That's why it's so hard. That's why there's such a war against truth in this day. Go downtown Asheville. Go anywhere you want to in Buncombe County and try to have a conversation in public about the homosexual lifestyle, about anything you want to put there that is happening as our culture just absolutely disintegrates before us and use the Bible as the standard. Watch what happens. 
It, it, it's met with aggression. It's met with violence. It's met with you being spit on. It's met with you being punched in the face. Why is that? Because the devil only fights what he fears. It's the truth. And that's where we come to a place, not of a great mountain where we have some sort of great power that is in us. Second Corinthians lays it out for us that the excellency of the power is not in us, but the excellency of the power is in God. And then we have the opportunity to show that light, to be the salt, to be the difference to other people. In other words, this text doesn't make me hate people. It doesn't make me want to chunk stones at people that are in a particular lifestyle. It breaks my heart for the condition of their soul and I want God to change them. I want God to save them and I want God to do it before it's too late. It's a humble, humble place to be. And I'm not going to pretend for one moment like I have the clout, the understanding, or the experience to embrace all of that. I have to preach that to myself and say, God, help me be humble as I approach those difficult places. But God, keep me thankful for what you've done in my life. Moving on, go to 2, verse 1. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doeth the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such this verse, these two verses especially, are so mistreated and misused. There is a little blurb that will come out of people sometimes, especially folks that are unchurched, folks that do not come to uh, any sort of church activity. They don't come to church faithfully at all. They don't have any faith. They don't believe the Bible. Whatever you want to put there, that category of person. Sometimes when they're met or they're challenged with something that's truth from God's word or someone in love and even in the right tone in the right way approaches them and says, hey, I love you enough to tell you that I think the way you're living, that I think the way that you're conducting yourself, maybe it's for the sake of your child, the sake of your grandchild, I don't think it's right. And people will say, well, who are you to judge me? You have no right to judge me. Who's ever heard that before? Don't judge me. You don't have a right to judge me. Well, actually, according to Holy Scripture, we are to judge. We are to make designations. That's how we live in the world, but not become of the world. How in the world are you to do as Jesus said to assess the fruit, to look at the fruit, to understand the fruit of someone's life and not take into consideration the way in which someone is living. The word there that you're looking for, let me give it to you, is by judging them. The idea that we're not to judge one another is not biblical. The idea that you're to judge each other or that we're to judge one another in a way where we use ourselves as the standard, listen to what I'm saying, 
a, a place where you judge someone and you're doing it from a place of self-righteousness rather than in a place of pity or warning for a person in love, that's when it becomes wrong. You see, judging one another, looking at our lives, looking at how we live, if you go back to the first century church and how they lived, buddy, I'm gonna tell you something. They lived differently than we did. They did church a whole lot differently. They did life a whole lot differently. There were not only opportunities to be judged, but publicly ridiculed. We would have a mass exodus that looked like this building was on fire if we conducted ourselves in the way that some of that first century church did. But there is a biblical understanding here for all of us to be judged and to live in a way to where we can, as the Apostle Paul yet again said, give an account for the way that we're living. Now, we're not talking about uh, the police of the church keeping tabs on one another through Facebook. Uh-oh. Keeping tabs on one another through Instagram. Well, did you see what she said? I happen to know differently. If you want to watch gossip in the most innocent way possible, watch the Andy Griffith Show. There's some great examples of that. Some of the greatest episodes were about gossip in men and gossip in women. But that's not what God's called us to do. We're not to look at each other the way we live and the way we conduct ourselves and make a little list and say, well, here's Sally's report card as it pertains to me. Well, I see she missed Wednesday night. Mm, X. Oh, I needed somebody to help volunteer at this event. Sally wasn't there. X. Oh, I haven't seen Sally at ladies' prayer. Oh, mm, X. That's not what this is talking about. Do not mistake this as your Ranger Rick and it's your job to keep up with everybody. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about folks that love each other enough to hold each other to the standard, not of themselves, but of Jesus. You see, the moment we change the judgment and we say, well, I didn't live that way, but look how they're living. I've never said anything like that in my life, but did you hear what they said? And somehow we begin to find some sort of self-righteous morality for us to be able to separate ourselves from somebody, like someone that's maybe in a lifestyle that is contrary to God's word. And then we say, well, I would never. We see someone who's in a broken relationship, someone that's living in a home that's not right. And then we go, well, I would never. I never have. That's where the judgment becomes wrong. That's where the judgment then is passed on to you. Because now you are imparting to yourself, you're saying that I'm the standard setter. I'm the righteousness that needs to be observed. It's easy to do. It really, really is. You'll see someone on the street and what's the first stereotypical thing we do? We say, how are they on the street? How did they get to this place? Was it drug use? Are they an ex-con that's just got out of jail and they don't have anywhere to go? Well, I would never... 
And what we do is we start finding the place where we're somehow better than them. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is when you judge one another, don't do it with you as the standard. Do it with Christ as the standard. And then when you do that, when you put yourself up against Jesus, here's you and here's me. There's going to be some things that you feel that you're better at, that you've done better, that your life's been much more moral than my life. Maybe I can look at you and say, well, they did this, they messed up, and I can compare and I can find fault and I can say, well, I would never do that and I never did that and I have the moral high ground because I never was that type of person. This is what's dangerous. But when when these two individuals stop looking at each other and comparing each other and judging one another on their own understanding and their own level of righteousness, let's say, and they take their eyes off of that and then they put themselves in light of who Jesus is and set themselves at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, open me up and assess me, then what you find is that both people are broken and undone, unrighteous, unholy, the Bible says as filthy rags, and both parties are in desperate need of Jesus. And when we judge, when we assess, when we make the assumption, when we look into a life and we say, God, would you give them the grace to come out of that situation, that circumstance? We say it from our position that's just as low as theirs with grateful hearts. God, I want you to fix that home. Put them people in a right place. God, I pray that those two would get married and stop living in that unhinged home and get it right for the sake of the children that live in that home. Not because I'm better than them or that I've reached some level of righteousness and holiness in my own self, but because Jesus can change their life and we see the hope of the potential of Christ becoming the center of that home. It's a completely different way of looking at a situation and at a person. Listen, do you know how you solve 99.9% of silly, unnecessary church hurt? You stop comparing each other to one another and you start looking at Jesus. Because then what you'll find is we're all sinners saved by grace. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. This judgment that's being passed on here There's some verses in Hebrews. There's a few verses in Psalms and we'll come to these as a point of study. But the Bible teaches clearly to whom much is given, much is required. That principle is so evident, especially in the New Testament. When God gives someone truth, see, here we are again, right up against this thing and we've got to, We've got to really be careful. 
you've got to really understand just how little you had to do with your salvation. You listen to me. No one has ever been saved. No one has ever been birthed into the kingdom of God that came in a place of pride. You do not get born again in an elevated position. People who are born again get in the fetal position as a fetus, as a baby, as a lowly, lowly, unable to do anything person. They get into a low place. Usually, if you'll notice in the life of a child, when a child gets saved, God will prick their heart over one sin. God will just hammer that one sin home and he'll expose that to that child. He'll show that Jesus is the son of God. He'll convict them, but he'll use one sin as the place to really drive home the fact that they're a sinner. For me, at 15 years old, it was my mouth that I could tell a lie and be a smooth criminal doing it. And even that night before I got saved, I had lied to my mama and looked like Peter Jennings doing it. She took it as gospel truth and the news. But you know what God used as my place, as that sin, as that moment to reveal to me that I was a sinner? My lying as a 15-year-old. And I did not come to God. I did not come to Christ. I wasn't born again, regenerated in a position of pride or in an elevated posture. I crawled into the kingdom of God in a lowly place. No one ever comes to Christ in that position. And for us, to whom much is given, much is required. Imagine now you, your life. How many of you were saved before the age of 18? Raise your hand. Saved before the age of 18. Praise the Lord. How many were saved after 18? Was there anybody saved in here after 70? Is there anybody in here saved after age 70? You don't mind raising your hand? After age 70? Well, those are special. But when you'll start imagining your life, when you start seeing exactly what all God did for you at salvation, and you ponder for just a moment where you could be and what could have been your life if God had not revealed himself to you in salvation, then you really start to change the tone towards other people. You really start to change the way you look at other people. God's not called us to beat each other with sticks. The book of James gives us an opportunity to confess our sins one to another. That means to encourage one another. It's not some sort of ecclesiastical box that we go sit in and confess sin. Well, I told this lie, I did this, I did that. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about mutual transparency amongst believers. So let's all do this. Take a deep breath. If you're saved and you're on your way to heaven, born again, and you're in this building tonight, you are a trophy of grace and mercy. I was not born into the family of God because of who my mama was, who my daddy was, or who my granddaddy was. 
I was just as lost as you were. But Jesus, in love and in grace and in mercy, pulled me out of the mire and saved me. And now when I look at other people, especially when I conduct life around other Christians, I want to do it in a way that I keep that in my mind daily. This is a really humbling moment. Well, I've lived for God for 45 years. And if you're still serving God, living for God 45 years later, it was not because of anything that was within you. It was but for the grace and the mercy of God. And some of you, yes, have been serving God and living for God that long, but you forgot how to thank him for keeping your soul and for sustaining you in those 45 years. There is no room for pride within the family of God as it pertains to our status spiritually. We're all at a low place when it comes to who Christ is. When we put King Jesus as Lord, I love when we call him Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. When he's in the right place as Lord, as chief instrument in our life of regulation and power and inspiration, when he's in his rightful place in our lives, there is nothing that can rise above him. And we will find ourselves in the John 3.30 lifestyle where we have become little tiny mites and minions in comparison to the great Lord that saved us. Christians should be the most humble people you have ever met in your life. Not Buddhists. Not Muslims, not Hindu, not atheists, or New Age pagan worshipers. Those should not be the most humble, kind people on earth. It should be Christians. We have the truth. We have the only relationship with the actual God that has ever existed in all of creation. And because of him, yet again, not because of us, we get to spend eternity, eternity, eternity in paradise, in heaven, on the streets of gold with the walls of jasper and the gates of pearl around the throne forever. And then it should make us humble. There's so much of what the Apostle Paul said in Romans that I'm finding here in these first two chapters that links up to things that he said in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. It's like a brother and sister. For we preach not ourselves. This is 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. That's where this brings us. And if you're here tonight and you're living a life that pleases God, then you must be living that life that pleases God in a place of humility and with a position of pity for people who are lost and undone without Christ. You see, part of the reason the church is in the condition that it is in this day and this hour, especially in the United States of America, is because the church lost its burden for lost people. We lost the tears that used to drench the altar when we think about people who were lost and undone on their way to hell. And when I see someone, when I meet someone 
that's obviously living a different life than the one that they could be. What I've asked God to do for my heart is, Lord, instead of me inspecting them from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet and trying to figure out who they voted for in the last election, God, give me a heart for that person and where they're going to spend eternity. And maybe, Lord, you put a little urgency in my heart because it could be their last day on earth that I would be bold enough, that I would be brave enough, that I would love them enough to tell them the good news that Jesus loves them. We've got a lot to cover on this judgment issue. This is just scratching the surface. But before we can go there, we've really got to embrace this position that we're in as safe people. And really, really understand what it means. We've got enough time. Let's do this. Go with me into Matthew chapter 5. Because again, I believe this all ties in together and it sort of pivots. As it pertains to the judgment. As we're looking for the standard as we're looking for some sort of outline and guide on how life should be lived. There is, no, there is no greater example for us as Christians than Christ himself. And during his ministry, the Sermon on the Mount, we recently have covered each and every one of these. This is the standard that we cling to. We do not in any way, shape, form, or fashion use some sort of man-constructed law or group of rules to be the coffee table-sized book that we beat people in the head with. Another way to put that is legalism. I think for some of our brethren that are off in major left field when it pertains to legalism. Number one, God bless them, they're robbed of all joy. Oh God. You see, I was blessed. I grew up in a home where I, I didn't know anything about that foolishness. I didn't know anything about it. It wasn't until I was a teenager traveling, going to other churches with my family, with my granddaddy, that I began to understand what that really looks like. Talking about ladies not wearing pants or that there's a particular type of instrument that's not allowed in a church setting. Now listen, there are preferences. There are preferences that God allows. There are personal convictions. And then there's just rules made up out of thin air that usually weak insecure men in leadership used to beat people into subjection. Amen. And they'll answer to God for it. I don't wear a suit and tie on Sunday because it's in some sort of rule book. I do it because I love the Lord and I want to put on the best clothes I got in my house. If the best clothes I got in my house is a poncho and a sombrero, then we're going to wear my poncho and sombrero. But when I opened up my closet, I had a sport coat and a tie, so that's what I put on. 
we come to some places where all of this become, really becomes to the surface and we begin to see some of the foolishness that we call Christianity, that we call going to church, where we've put up these false pseudo walls that we say, well, that's a wall we can't go through there or that's a line that cannot be crossed. God's word is what defines our lives. And Jesus himself was the great example for us to follow. So when we go looking for the standard, let's not look within other churches. Let's not look within other ministries. Let's not look at what someone's wearing to church as the indicator. Those are silly, trivial trivialities that matter not as it pertains to eternal things. And instead, let's go to the source the greatest example ever to live. His name was Jesus. Matthew chapter five, verse number three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, get that one figured out and then we'll go on to the next one. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay, we really, really took a deep dive on that one. We know what that means. All right, let's go to the next one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When you've got the meekness and the humility that Christ is talking about there, then let's go on to the next one. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. That's the standard. Not some author from 1980 that put out a list of rules and regulations and we cling to that with our death grip saying, well, that's, that's our standard. No, no. Jesus is our standard. Jesus is where we look to for how we compare. Not with Baptist doctrine, not with heritage, not with things that have burned up and that are corruptible, but to Jesus himself and what he said. And don't take my words and run with them and say, Pastor Winston said we should have no standards. We're going to get rid of our King James Bible and we're going to turn the lights off in here and have smoke and fog and a rock show next Sunday. You say they would never do that. Yes, they would. We're talking about living for Jesus, desperately searching, desperately looking to Him to be the standard, to be the guideline, and nothing else. That makes some people very uncomfortable because it so goes up against a tradition of, well, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we've always said it. Yes, and some of the stuff that we've done in the past, we should not have done. Some of the ways that we treated other people should have not happened. But thank God for grace and for mercy and for that verse that says, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. It's an opportunity for all of us to assess where we are and say, Lord, thank you for saving me. Keep me humble. Keep me tender. Keep me pliable. Keep me friendly. Keep me kind. Uh-oh. Keep a smile on my face. Doesn't mean we don't have bad days. 
When I run into me at three o'clock in the morning at Walmart or three o'clock in the afternoon at Ingalls, I want to try to be the same person that I am right here. Consistent, loving, and an example, not of who I am, but of who Jesus is. Isn't that good? Aren't you thankful that you do not have to attach yourself to your 32-year-old pastor and say, there's the standard setter. Aren't you thankful for that, Brother Darren? Praise God I am. I can go look at Jesus and say, nope, that's the standard. Let's follow him. Praise the Lord for that. Well, doesn't that clear it up? Oh, my. That just gives me a breath of fresh air. It takes it above anything that human hands can touch. And we can go straight to the source of who Jesus is. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, we're so thankful for you and your intervention in our lives independently, individually. Lord, we worship you in this place tonight. God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for my salvation. God, I never want to get over it. Lord, thank you for calling me from death to life, from darkness to light. God, that I have a name that's recorded in the Lamb's book of life and that for all eternity, I get to spend my life with you. My new birth, God, that I simply could not have done in my own power. But Jesus, because of you, because of your sacrifice, because of your love, God, I have that eternal life. God, I pray as we look at each other, as we live our lives together in this church, God, I pray that we would be very careful, God, in the way that we treat one another. God, in the way that we look at people with pasts and with history. God, people that come in with baggage. Lord, if it had not been for the grace and the mercy of God coming by my way at the age of 15. God, you could have waited till I was 25 or 35 or 55, but in grace and in mercy, at 15 years old, you opened my blind eyes. And I thank you. Father, as I look upon others, as I embrace the world and who they are and I embrace Christians and who we are. Father, I would never look at them from an elevated position of self-righteousness, but I would look upon each and every man and woman I come in contact with in a position of who you are, with eyes like Jesus, with a heart that loves like Jesus, with a mouth that speaks the words of Jesus. Father, I'll be faithful to be the representative that you demand me to be, the salt, the light, the difference maker. God, I thank you that our church has freedom, the liberty, the life that you've given us. God, I thank you that our pastors, our founding pastor, Dr. Ralph Sexton Sr., our pastor emeritus, Dr. Ralph Sexton Jr., God, I thank you for those men Lord, for keeping us balanced in the middle of the road, right where we belong, being the church that you called us to be, never veering too far to the left, never veering too far to the right, but staying in the middle of the road with Jesus, following the path that he had for our church. 
I praise your holy name for that generational blessing. Help us to keep sight of what really matters. Lord, I pray that we would use you as the standard. Jesus, that you would be Lord in our lives, that we would be tender, humble, and pliable to what you want, to the standard that you've set. We'll grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We pray these things. Amen and amen. A lot more to be said in that chapter. We're just getting started. Don't miss Wednesday night. We'll be right back in it. Again, we don't want to spend a whole lot of time reviewing, so we'll spend just a few moments. Wednesday night, we'll hit maybe three minutes of this. So if you're watching tonight, you're just maybe catching the back end of this, go back and really finish chapter one and let's go into chapter two together strong. Let's try to have our attendance where it needs to be. If you're able to be here Wednesday night, let's really start uh, putting that in our minds as something that we do not want to miss if at all possible. I know folks have to work and I know folks have lives and families and we are a regional church. That's something that we've got to keep in mind. Uh, We have families that drive here every week that come from South Carolina, families that come from Tennessee. We have folks that come up when they have the gas money and they're able to pay for it, uh, that do not have a church, whether they're in South Carolina or Tennessee, that's near their home. And so when they're not able to come, they have to worship with us online. Are you thankful that you're able to be in the building tonight? Praise the Lord for that. But if you have the gas money and you have the ability and you have the time and you can see at night to drive, Try your best to be here Wednesday night. We're really going to start trying to make that emphasis and push Wednesday night. We're praying about the right time to bring back the Wednesday night family meal. Would that be a blessing? Be able to come straight here, have supper together. I'm talking about supper. I'm not talking about something slapped on a plate real fast. I'm talking about supper. I'm talking about pork chops, mashed potatoes and gravy, peas, creamed corn. A salad bar for those of us that are trying to be good. And then, of course, dessert for those of you that can indulge. But we need to bring that back probably sooner rather than later. It would be a blessing for the families to be able to come, to be a part. So you help us pray. We've got a lot of things to pray about over the next few months. And uh, you just ask that the Lord would lead God and direct that we'll be tender to follow Him. Amen. I love you. Go get your children. Take them home. Kiss them on the forehead. Tell them you love them that you thank God for him. Have a good night, be safe, and we'll see you Wednesday night, Lord willing.